following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning away out there. <laughs> Welcome everybody on the computer and those that are here. All right, Brother James, thank you. We look forward to what God has showed you from his word. Good morning. We're turning again to the book of Nahum, and we will take another look. I'll start by reading the first portion of the book in chapter 1. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place. Now Nineveh, Assyria, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time, while, for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like the stubble, fully dried. From whence comes forth 
one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. To review some of the things that we mentioned before, we see some words here that are strong, dramatic. Uh, We might think of them as emotional terms in some way. Words such as jealous, that God is jealous. Words, avenges. The word avenges and avenge. Three times in one verse, verse two. Those are pretty strong there. Furious and wrath, all these kinds of words. Now, consider this. We know that these words, when referring to God and his attitude, does not reflect a defect in God. Contrary to what some unbelievers might say, there is no defect in God's character, and there is also no defect in the expressions being presented as they are. They are presented for our learning. We learn something about the character of God by looking at what has been revealed here. And so we come with full confidence that what we have is God's word. It is from God. It came through this one, this prophet, uh, Nahum. But it is God's word. This is what he has for us to see and to understand and consider. God is jealous or he is zealous. He is jealous or zealous because of his perfect love for his people. His perfect love. So the jealous is a demonstration of his love. It comes out of that. He avenges, takes vengeance, reserves wrath because He is a God of justice. Now, to say that God is a God of love is to make a true statement. But to say that that's all that he is is to make a false statement. He not only is a God of love, but he is also a God of justice. And so when we see these words, he avenges, he avenges, He takes vengeance. He has this wrath. He's furious, all these things. Those things are showing us that our God is a God of justice. He is furious to demonstrate that he means business and is not to be trifled with. That's a big word. God means business. 
Uh, he is not to be trifled with. Now, some of the expressions that we see here in this chapter that are specifically related and tied in to the position that Nineveh had worked themselves into show that they, may I say it? They were trifling with God. Now we can think about the Assyrians. We can think about Nineveh. And we can say that they were trifling with God. And because of that, this great judgment is coming. And it's going to overtake them. And all the world will be able to see and to know that they trifled with a God who not only was a God of love, but was also a God of justice. It's another thing, though, for us to consider our own personal relationship to our God and to ask for ourselves a question personally. Am I trifling with the same God that I have just said that Nineveh and the Assyrians were trifling with? Am I a person individually? Am I trifling with that God? Am I saying that my thoughts are better than his? I can choose to do whatever I please because I know better than he does, and he doesn't get to tell me what to do. That's for me to think about for myself. Let's move along. So what was the problem with the Assyrians to get themselves into this place? I mentioned before, and I will say it again, that evidently they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know. They had a form of wisdom. But the form of wisdom that they relied on betrayed them. It failed them. But they had a form of wisdom. This reminds me of an expression that we find in 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to turn there and read. In 1 Corinthians, and hear the words coming through the Apostle Paul, and beginning at verse 6 in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, here is what we read. The Apostle Paul uses these words. He says, however we speak wisdom among those who are mature, Yet, not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. The rulers of this age. We are some mighty, powerful rulers in the world. 
But if they're not right with God, they're coming to nothing. A lot of people obey them. A lot of people listen to them. A lot of people will do whatever it is they say to do. Now, in verse 7, Paul says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. And now here's a part, and this is what I was drawing your attention to, what he says here. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known. I've said it before. To be in a battle and not know who the enemy is that you're fighting against puts you at a disadvantage. To be at battle and in a war against God and to not know that's that battle that you have is against the living God is a bad place to be. That's not a good place. The Assyrians should have known better than to allow themselves to be uh, to adopt the behaviors, the actions that got them into the place where they were when this prophecy was given. I'm suggesting that they should have known for two specific reasons. We talk about history, and I think we could all agree that we ought to be able to learn something from history in order to make a better path and not to repeat some of the things that were done that brought bad results. And even in our personal lives, we think about that. We, we went down a path, and it was the wrong one. We found out about that, and we turned away and went a different way. That should be for us a historical lesson that we can hang on to so that when we get tempted to go down that path again, we can draw up that history and say, I know that path. I'm not going down there. As strong as this temptation is right now, I have a basis to say, don't do that. Nineveh should have understood. Why do I say that? I've said it before. I will say it again for two reasons. See, I'm saying God sent a prophet by the name of Jonah, approximately 150 years before Nahum comes with this prophecy. And he said to them, the judgment of the Lord is coming. It's impending. And what did they do? They listened to the prophet. In fact, they listened to the prophet. They repented of their actions, and God spared them, that generation and generations beyond that. In fact, it's a bit ironic when you read it, because 
Jonah got upset with God. He got upset with God and he said, you see, I knew that's the kind of God you are, that you would do something like this. Now these people, you know, I went and told them they're going to be destroyed and now here you've shown mercy to them. But the thing is, those people listened and they responded favorably and God passed over the judgment that was coming after them. They should have kept that lesson front and center and not let it just slide away as if it wasn't a part of their history. But there's another thing, too, and we mentioned this one as well before, that the Assyrians, in 701 B.C., besieged Jerusalem and Judah, and they wrecked, they wreaked havoc on a lot of Judah. But they didn't get to enter Jerusalem. Hezekiah was the king at that time, and the threats were real, and he responded. And Hezekiah did the most wise thing. He didn't rely on the wisdom of men, but he turned to the living God. And as a consequence of that, God says, the battle is not yours. The fight that Nineveh and Assyria is bringing is not your concern. That's my concern. All you need to do is to have your trust in me. I'll take care of Assyria. And so what did he do? So in one night, 185,000 of their soldiers died overnight. Obviously, that's God. No military might in that land or in would, would, would have been able to wipe out those troops like that without the army lifting a finger. That was God's business. So we're suggesting that Nineveh, the Assyrians, they had reason to not allow themselves to have gotten into the condition they were in. But they were in that condition. And so slow to anger. That's in verse number three in Nahum here. So God is slow to anger. But slow to anger doesn't mean never will anger. It just means slow. It just means that there are opportunities that God gives. It just shows another aspect or another trait of God's character, slow to anger. James in the Book of James says we should be slow to anger. A trait which God has, he says we should have it. <clears throat> I want to read some verses relating to this. 
Because this idea of God being slow to anger is not just seen here in this portion. I'm going to read some of the verses. And I'm going to read from my printed copy here. And I think I have all of these taken from the NET. So if you happen to read those, it may read slightly differently than from what you have in your, in your text. In Exodus chapter 34, in verse number 6, it says, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. You can look at the context for these later, but I'm just bringing these to draw attention to this point. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse number 18, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loyal love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children until the third and fourth generation. The, the children, if they continue in the same iniquity, they get the same result. Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Tear your hearts, not just your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, and boundless in loyal love, often relenting from calamitous punishment. That's what Jonah got upset about. And now I'm going to read the little section from Jonah, chapter 2, I mean chapter 4 and verse number 2. And he said, this is what Jonah, listen to this. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, this is just what I thought would happen when I was in my own country. Now this sounds like an upbraiding of God by Jonah. Wow, that is quite bold. But that's what it says here. This is what I tried to prevent by attempting to escape. Tarshish. What is it that he was trying to escape? Those people being able to be the recipients of the mercy and the grace of God? Well, if his heart had been right, he would have wanted that to be their portion. But he said he was trying to prevent that, so he ran off. Then he says, because I know, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threatened judgment. Those are really quite astounding words. But that's what Jonah says. So Jonah was just, he was being frank, he was being honest, he was just saying it the way it was for him. And we can appreciate that. But he also demonstrated that he understood something about the character of God. 
and these character traits that he mentioned are indeed character traits of this God. And so Jonah was right on target with that respect of it. In Psalm 86, in verse number 15, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and merciful God. You are patient and demonstrate great loyal love and faithfulness. So one of the things then that is interesting is that these terms that are being given here about God venging and his uh, uh, vengeance and his fury and all this and his anger. But those things are, you have to understand that if you just take that part and run off and think you have the st- all you need to know, you, you miss the boat completely. Now the next portion here, and we visited this before, so he's slow to anger, but he's also a God of great power. So what might seem to be the slowness of response of God has nothing to do with weakness. It has nothing to do with inability because he has great power. And so we see dramatic expressions from in this uh, book, in this section of the text, which is illustrating or demonstrating this powerful God and giving it in terms that we can think, wow, how awesome is the power. It's beyond what we can fully comprehend. But these kind of dramatic expressions that Nahum uses helps us to think on those things. And I'm going to list out some of the things that we see here in the next verses, verses 3 through 6. After he talks about his great power, he has his way with the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are like the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up rivers. He causes lush pastures, vineyards, archers, and forests to wither. He makes mountains quake. He makes hills melt. He makes the earth heave. (laughs) He controls the world and all who are in it. Fury is poured out like fire. Rocks are thrown down by him. So all these expressions, so slow to anger, but a God of great power. I want to read a section related to this last one here about the throw down of the rocks. I'm turning now to the book of Exodus. You remember that God sent Moses down into Egypt with a message to give to Pharaoh. And the message was to let my people go. Moses was faithful in his commission. And he went down and he did and said exactly what the Lord told him to do. Pharaoh heard, and each time that Moses brought a new judgment from God upon them, Pharaoh responded to it. 
Listen to this one that we read about here in chapter 9. In verse number 18, it says this. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down. Think about hailstones. Rocks are thrown down by him. Such as has not been in Egypt since his founding until now. So Egypt had never seen what they were going to see with his hail. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He said, this hail is coming, and if you want something to live of your animal or your livestock or of yourself or of your household, you had better be inside when the hail comes. In verse 20, he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. I just want to pause for a second right there. Those who fear the word of the Lord, they heard that word. These were Pharaoh's people they talked about, that's talked about in this particular verse, but they heard it and they feared the word of the Lord. And so what did they do? Well, they did what Moses said had to be done. And so it says here, but he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. The gospel message gets delivered. People are told that they are sinners, and they have to reckon with God. They are told that they need to acknowledge and understand and repent of the sin and trust in the provision that God made for them through his son, the only begotten, the only one who could bear the sin for them. Some heard that message, and they responded, and they received that eternal life. But other ones did not regard the word of the Lord. In verse number 22, I'm still in Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his hand, or his rod, toward heaven. And the Lord thundered, and hail, or the hailstones and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now, I said that there were, I pointed out two things, and I said, well, Nineveh should have known better, and I listed two things, right? I could have listed this one and said, okay, here now I'm going to say three, because they should have known this. This is their history, and they should have known it. If they don't respond properly to it, then they get the consequence of doing 
of making that choice. Now, I want to go now to verse number 6 in Nahum, chapter 1. Here we see a couple of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical. And here, in parallel, is the way I understand the, what's rendered here. Who can stand before his indignation, God's indignation? Who can stand? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Who? So by rhetorical, both the one who's speaking and the one who hears know what the answer to the question is. He could have simply said, no one can stand before his indignation. No one can endure the fierceness of his anger. And those would have been true statements. And so this is a part of what we talked about when we mentioned the form of the language that the uh, prophet is using that is it's designed and is being used in a way that would grab the attention so that the people won't miss the message. Of course, we do know that God's word, however clear it might be, there are people who are still going to say, I, I don't care for that. Go and tell that to somebody else. They will say, I don't need it. To their own peril. But this is what it says here. Against God's indignation, nobody can stand. Against the fierceness of God's anger, no one can stand. The God we're speaking about here is the same God that we have. There's only one true God. There's not one God of the Old Testament or another God of the New. You'll read that in some books, depending on where you look, and they were presented like that. They were presented to God of the Old Testament as a God of, of, of uh, judgment and Hatred, even, I read one person commentator use that word, and depict the God of the New Testament as the God of love. But see, what they're doing is they're, they're separating, they're trying to separate out the character, God. They take one part of his character and say, I want that part, the other part of that character, say, well, I don't want that. Well, that's not the true God if you, if you divide it that way. So now I want to go to the next portion here, in verse number 7. Here's what it says in verse number 7. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. The Lord is good. So, even when we read all of these things, horrifying things, that are a sign or that the, the, the prophet is saying God is going to do these things, horrifying things to these people. The God who's doing that is a God who is good. That's, the scriptures, under, there's a, just no way to doubt or to question it. That the God is good. And that's another expression that's repeated throughout the scriptures as if we have to have it repeated over and over, over again so we understand and know. Because there are a lot of harsh things, the judgments, oh my goodness. Oh, the, the judgments. I mean, just if you get yourself wrapped in the judgments and, and you just stay there, you go into depression if you think that's all there is. But God is good. You have to know who the God is you serve. 
In, in Psalm 34, verse number 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are the man, men who trust in him, or the man who trusts in him, not people, not just a male person. Psalm 100 and verse number 5, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Psalm 135 and verse number 3, Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. Psalm 145 and verse number 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Or consider Jeremiah in chapter 33 and verse 11. The voice of the Lord and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return, as at the first says the Lord. So the Lord is good. In, Ver in Lamentations 3, 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And then we're back to the one that we just had. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. To those who trust in him, I want to close by bringing in just a little portion. He's a stronghold. He knows those who trust in him. In John chapter 10, we see the good shepherd. And let me just kind of zero in here. I'm going to start at verse 27 because we're towards the end here. In John chapter 10 and verse number 27, listen to this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're going to close with that. He knows those who trust in him. And so what we're doing is asking for my own part and for every person who hears to be one of them who trust in him. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us the privilege today to consider some of what you have caused to be recorded for our learning. Help us to learn by thy spirit. We ask in the name of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving. Amen. Thanks for your kind attention.